stand for the reading of God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai is the third to last book in the Old Testament, and we will be reading all of chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we do come to your word asking, even desiring that we would get something from it. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us our own sinfulness. Lord, that you would show us the ways in which we have abandoned you. Lord, we ask that you would show us the path to Christ in this text. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1776, the former slave trader and converted hymn writer, John Newton, wrote to a young pastor who was about to take over a congregation in a wealthy suburb of London, and he wrote this to this young pastor. I would as soon congratulate a man upon seeing a millstone tied about his neck to sink him in the depths of the sea as upon obtaining what is called a good living. Except I thought you to be determined to spend and be spent for the cause of the gospel. So John Newton is warning this young pastor about the deceitfulness of riches. That he's going to go into a context in which he might be drawn away from his commission, his task of preaching the gospel. And so he warns him of this reality. 
And the message of the book of Haggai is really the same. The people have returned to the land after exile in Babylon. God has miraculously brought them to Jerusalem. And we see in Ezra chapters 1 through 3 where it is recorded for us that the people are instructed to build the temple. And so they get to work in laying the foundation of the temple. They rebuild the altar. But somewhere along the way, they find opposition. You see, the inhabitants of the land are not too happy that Israel has returned to their, their place of origin. They aren't excited that they're there. And then in the political sphere, there's some concern in Persia that if Israel gets their temple, then they may rise up in rebellion against Persia. And so some 16 years have now gone by, and we see the prophet Haggai. The Lord raises up this faithful man of God to preach to them a very clear message. What's going on here? Why hasn't the temple been built? Why is it still in ruins? And so this book is really about Haggai's building campaign, campaign uh, for the expansion of the temple. And yet, like all of Scripture, it goes so much deeper than that, doesn't it? It cuts to the hearts of God's people. It exposes the sin that lay down deep in the crevices of our hearts. And so I do believe this book is worthwhile for our study. And so even though it is only two chapters long and we will only spend four weeks in it, I believe that it will be beneficial to each and every one of us. So as we walk through chapter 1, I simply want to alert you to three main movements of this text. And first, what we want to see is the call to consider your ways. Secondly, we want to see the call to action. And then thirdly and finally, we want to see the call to revival. So starting in verses 1 and 2, notice how the word of the Lord comes in with a bang. To the leadership. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, parents, I'm sure you've used this in your own home. You might not say, my kids are out of control, or you might not even say to your spouse, your kids are out of control. You might say, these kids are out of control. And so why is the Lord drawing such lines of distinction between himself and his people? Why is he acting like he has nothing to do with them? Well, it's because of what these people are saying. They are saying that the time has not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. You see, the people, of course, think it, thinks it, they think it's a good thing that the house of the Lord is to be rebuilt. They know that the Lord has commanded them to do it, but they just think that it's for another day, that it's for a time in the future. They, maybe it's because the economy is just not stable enough right now to devote the resources to this temple project. Maybe if we build this house, there will be so much opposition that we might lose our lives. And while their sin sounded reasonable to each other, it was not pleasing to God. Uh, perhaps you know the story of St. Augustine, the church father. St. Augustine grew up in a Christian home. He was raised up in the faith, and yet he was so drawn away by his lusts and passions that he fled the faith 
and went to pursue all kinds of novel philosophies in his life. And so he records in his confessions at one point in his unconverted state that he prayed this prayer, Father, give me chastity, but not yet. (laughs) Give me chastity, but not yet. And I'm sure you could probably fill in the blanks, couldn't you? Lord, give me patience, but not yet. Lord, give me gentleness, but not yet. Lord, give me constancy in prayer, but not yet. Friends, be careful with the deceitfulness of sin. It always promises that you can remain with it today and it won't affect you tomorrow. It always pledges to you that you can have fun with it today and you can be with God tomorrow. And yet the Lord is not pleased with this kind of thinking. This is what's caused him to say, these people. But we do have a different word from the Lord, don't we? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Jesus comes to us in the gospel and says, today is the day of salvation. There need not be any time for waiting. Students, you may be tempted to think, That at this point of your life, you can live your lives however you want. That you can have fun and then maybe in 10 years when I'm older, I will follow the Lord. And I hope you realize that that's the deception of Satan. Who tries to push off faithfulness to the Lord in the future. But we know that we're not guaranteed another day. Our lives are like mists that vanish at dawn. And so, we are not to wait another day. Don't wait if God is speaking to you this day. And so, we do have people that's content and complacent in their half-hearted obedience. But then the Lord brings a message of repentance in verses 3 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The time wasn't right for them to rebuild the house of the Lord, but it was right for them to adorn their houses with fancy panels. You see, these panels were the exact same kind of thing that were used in Solomon's temple. In fact, they were supposed to be these resources devoted to the building of the temple, but we find them using it on their own homes. And so the Lord's coming along and saying, what's going on here? You busy yourself with your own homes. You spend all of your resources on yourself. You seek to please yourself. And yet my house remains in ruins. Is this fitting for a people who have been brought out of bondage to Babylon? Is this fitting for the redeemed people of the Lord to be more concerned with their own homes than with the house of God, that sacred place of worship? And so the Lord comes to them and says, consider your ways. What's going on here? Why are you content with your sin? And he doesn't leave this up for interpretation, does he? you notice in verse 6, he shows them the foolishness of their ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. 
And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So the Lord comes to them and says, you're concerned about food? You're concerned about water? Well, how's it going? What has it gotten you? You're so concerned about money that as fast as it comes in is as fast as it goes out. You can't hold on to any of these things. So what has your sin gotten you ultimately? Have you arrived at the pleasure that you seek, the financial security that you seek? Or is it never enough? There's a story that's attributed to John D. Rockefeller, but like many stories in history, we don't know if it is actually true. Uh, But the story goes like this. He was once asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And you might know the answer. He replied, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. And if you place an undue weight of importance on even good things in this life, it will never be enough. Again, Christ comes to us in the gospel and says, why are you concerned about bread and water when I have bread for you that you will never hunger when you eat it. I have water from which you will never thirst. So come, buy and eat, drink of me, and there you will find everlasting pleasure and joy forevermore. But sin always has us on the track for something else, the next thing. It always has us discontent. It always has us seeking after things, hoping that by getting them that we will finally be satisfied. And yet, we know that's not the case. Jesus Christ is the only one who can satisfy the human heart. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. And friends, contentment is indeed a rare and precious jewel. And we can only find it if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then these other things will then be taken care of. And so we have a call to consider your ways. And then secondly, we have a call to action in verses 7 through 11. Now, if you've ever taken lessons for any kind of sport or instrument, you will know that they often go like this. Your instructor comes in, takes a look at your performance, and tells you all of the things that you're doing wrong. I took many golf lessons over my high school years, and that's what it seemed to always be about. About three quarters of the time spent on, you're in this wrong position, you're doing this wrong, this is why you hit a hook, and this is why you hit a slice. And I would get frustrated by that. And I would get to the point of just saying, okay, how do I fix this? How do I make this right? Well, that's how repentance works, doesn't it? Repentance doesn't just only look at the sinfulness in our own hearts, but it also looks at how can I make things right? How can I amend my ways so that I please God? And so that's what we see here in this call to action. In verse 7 and 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It's a simple command, isn't it? Go up to the hills, lay axe to the roots, cut down the tree, bring the logs down and build my house. Don't wait anymore. Don't deliberate. Don't think about it some more. Just go build it. Go build the house of the Lord. And yet it's not just a bare command, is it, either? 
It's joined together with these true biblical motives that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified in it. Now, kids, you know that your parents are always far more pleased with you if you obey them with a joyful attitude. If you roll your eyes and shrug your shoulders, they're usually not too happy with that kind of obedience. And that's what the Lord is saying here, that they should be ultimately concerned with glorifying Him and pleasing Him. The Christian is to be someone who makes much of the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. This is our highest aim. This is our greatest joy, that God would be glorified and that God would be pleased with our actions. And of course, these people haven't even considered that. They're just concerned with pleasing themselves. But I hope that we can all say with Paul, whether at home or away, I make it my aim to please the Lord. Christians are people who make it their aim to glorify and to please God. So Israel was far more concerned with pleasing themselves. And this ultimately got them into a place of discipline, doesn't it? In verses 9 through 11, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So the Lord is using this call to action by using creation as his means. The people are so concerned with farming, they're so concerned with their own material possessions, he strips it from them. Why is there hardship in the land? Because God is not pleased with his people. And God will often use hardships, trials, difficulties in our lives to show his displeasure with our sin, to show that he is not pleased with us. Now, we don't want to be like the friends of Job who point to some specific sin as the reason for every suffering we encounter in this life. Uh, But we don't want to be like Israel either, who is totally blinded to it. The creation around them is calling out for their repentance. They're having a hard time in the fields. That's because they're disobeying God. They're having a hard time at home. That's because they're in disobedience to God. The Lord has... A wonderful way of getting our hands off this world, doesn't he? The great Puritan Thomas Watson once said, In prosperity the heart is apt to be divided. The heart cleaves partly to God and partly to the world. God draws and the world draws. Now God takes away the world that the heart may cleave more to him in sincerity. God will do this in our lives if we are not following him. He will bring his hand of discipline. But it's not a malicious thing. It's because he loves us. God disciplines his children that he loves. And it's a mercy that God takes away those things that might destroy us. It's a loving father who places a pebble in the shoes of his children so that they might not wander too far off his paths. God will use discipline to straighten the paths of his children. So, 
We don't want to be blind to that. We don't want to be blind to the miseries in our own lives and think that, of course, it's not because of any sin in my life. But we want to consider our ways, see what's going on. And so this discipline was a call to action, that the people would amend their ways. And then we finally see Haggai's call to revival in verses 12 through 15. After three weeks of Haggai preaching this message, preaching faithfully the Lord's message to God's people, there was a noticeable change that occurred among them, as you see in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. You can see the change in pronouns, can't you? No longer is it these people. Now they're saying, the Lord, our God. The Lord, their God. They've come to a place of repentance, haven't they? It says simply that they obeyed the Lord. They didn't have to submit an overture to a committee. They didn't have to vote on it and by a slim majority get it passed at a general assembly. No, it just says they obeyed the Lord and they feared him. And this is how God works in his word. Simple obedience, simple reverence, no qualifications, no deliberations. God has commanded it, I will do it. And that's only occurring because of Haggai's preaching. Haggai's brought this message to the people. But he has one more message that he wants to bring to the people in verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. A four-word sermon. The shortest sermon of Haggai's sermons here in this text. A four-word sermon containing the very best of promises. I am with you. This sermon, this message, this simple promise is something that they could treasure. That they could take with them wherever they go. Because it may require that they sacrifice some of their own comfort. It may require that if they are going to obey God, that it might put them into some difficult situations. But they have this treasure of a promise. I am with you. Friends, you might find yourself in difficult situations where obedience is hard. But this promise applies to you. God says to you, I am with you. Don't think that if I give you some command or something that you need to obey that I won't help you carry it. God is with you. One of the things I always enjoy watching is when a young child jumps into the deep end for the very first time. And I'm sure many of you have experienced it, even seen it. And it's always amazing because the child has such fear and trepidation uh, on their face. And they're unwilling to jump. But the father is standing in the deep end saying, come on, jump. I got you. I'll catch you. That's what the Lord is saying here. I'm with you. I'm right here. I'm not leaving you. Don't think that I'm just going to burden you with all my commands and then just leave you to go do it yourself. No, my presence will go with you. So this is a tremendous promise that the people are 
fueled with so that they can obey the Lord. In 1621, there was a relatively unknown and unexperienced preacher by the name of John Livingston. He was a young preacher. He hadn't preached very much. And he was invited to preach uh, during a communion season in Scotland. And there were hundreds, even thousands gathered for this communion season. And it was a day that was pouring down rain. And yet the people were all there. And he got up to preach Ezekiel 36. I will put a new spirit within you. And as he declared the glories of Jesus Christ and called sinners forth from their sin to repentance, 500 people were converted that day. This relatively obscure preacher seeing a great work of God happening among his people. And yet what was so amazing about this was that uh, it was the diversity of the people that responded to the call. It was everyone in the community on the edge of their seat, ready to obey. And it was from the richest to the poorest, from the oldest to the youngest, everyone ready, asking, what can I do? They were so struck to the heart. And that's what we see here as the Lord brings revival in verse 14. It starts with the leadership, and then it trickles down to all the people. As you read with me, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So it wasn't just the leadership. Yes, they needed to be reformed, but it was all the people. And that's how God works in the body of Christ. He has many instruments to accomplish the Great Commission. Each member of the body is important. And so what we see here is the people all coming around, no longer saying, I don't need to do any of this. We'll let the leadership do it. They're all saying, how can I help? What can I do? And God has prepared carpenters and concrete pourers. He's prepared architects and interior designers. All of these different individuals ready to do their own unique skill set. And that's how it works in the church. People with their own gifting from the Lord, seeking to help out. Lord, what can I do? This is a mark of true revival. It's a mark of spirit-brought revival. And so it is a wonderful thing that we see the change of these people in this text. And as we begin to close, I just want to alert you to two things, two ways that this text, I believe, instructs us for today. And the first is Haggai's preaching pushes us to pray for the work of the Spirit. You can't read through this passage without realizing that God is the one who is at work. It's God who has brought the people back to the land. It's God who has brought a drought on the land to wake the people up. It's God who has raised up this prophet Haggai to preach to them a message of repentance. It's God who has sent his Spirit down to stir them up to love and good works. It's all his work. And we don't want to think that we can just bring about revival by our own actions or by a preacher's emotional manipulation. It doesn't happen that way. Again, John Livingston, just a few weeks after he preached that great message and seeing so many come to Christ for the first time, he got up to preach at another church and he preached a clunker of a sermon. He couldn't even remember his points and he was really never asked to preach again. You see, the Lord will often... Use people for a time, 
and then set them down because we know that it's all his work. And so we ought to pray for it. We ought to pray for his spirit to come down to awaken the spiritually lethargic, to bring life to the dead because that's only what God can do. So, oh, that we would pray to the Father, Lord, open the heavens and come down. Dwell with your people. May we all walk from this building thinking that we got something of God today because that's what we need. Then secondly, Haggai's preaching persuades us of the priority of worship. Perhaps the reason why the Lord is so frustrated, so angry and displeased with his people is because they have messed with the matter of first importance, worship. The temple was to be a place where God was said to have dwelled among his people, and yet the people care more about their own houses. And so they are a people of misplaced priorities. And in another way, the temple was merely a type. It was a type of Christ. And so these people were having no regard for Christ himself. And yet, don't we do that so often in our own lives? We pay no attention to Christ, who is the pearl of great price, who is our treasure in heaven, but we invest our resources in things that moth and rust will destroy. Again, Jesus always comes to us and says, if you have me, you have everything. What could you possibly need if you have me? And so we ought to get our priorities straight, shouldn't we? Worship is what we were created to do. Worship is what we were made for. And so we will find no joy until we fully devote ourselves in worship to Christ. As that great song goes, trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but then to trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work among us, that you would strike us to the core, Lord, that we would see your beauty and desire nothing else but then to please and glorify you. Father, we know that this can only happen by the work of your Spirit. So we pray, Lord, send your spirit, come down, empower us for the work that you've set before us, so that we may glorify your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.